Hey there, welcome to XR Industry Leaders with ArborXR. My name is Brad Scoggin, and I am the CEO and one of three co-founders of ArborXR. We've had the opportunity of working with thousands of companies since 2016. And we've learned a ton about what it takes for XR to be successful in your organization. And I'm Will Stackable, co-founder and CMO. This podcast is all about interviewing the leaders who are on the ground making XR happen today. True pioneers in the space, from Amazon, Walmart, and UPS, to Coke, Pfizer, and beyond to uncover the pitfalls, lessons learned, and secrets that you can use to help grow XR in your organization. All right, well, today we are sitting down with Eric Brown. Eric is the Associate Creative Director for Stanford Digital Ed. Thanks so much for joining us today, Eric. Yeah, truly my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, before, I guess to kind of kick us off here, maybe tell us a little bit about your role within Stanford Digital Ed. As an Associate of Creative Director at Stanford Digital Ed, my primary function is to figure out how to leverage various technologies uh, to increase access and equity within the higher ed space. So SDE, which is what I'm going to call it going forward, just to make it a little bit easier. Um, it was a unit that was created during the pandemic. And there's a lot of sort of social unrest going on at the time. People were working remotely. Learners were learning remotely. Uh, and so there's a, a lot of questions that got plumbed up around, like, how do we increase access to the students that we currently have, but even more so like how does higher ed uh, make itself more accessible across uh, all the different constraints that we were witnessing during the pandemic. And so as a result of that, this team was formed and I was brought on because I was a filmmaker by trade and I'd been doing uh, online education for the last 10 years uh, at various universities. And so that sort of primed me to be a really good candidate to figure out exactly how we could leverage digital education and create an equitable space uh, for Stanford and hopefully higher ed in general. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And maybe tell us a little bit more about your background pre-Stanford. Yeah, sure. So uh, I got my master's in filmmaking uh, from Kingston University in London. Uh, after I got my master's, moved back to the States and I was filmmaking in New York for about four years as an independent director and producer, I realized that, you know, it was, it was a great experience, uh, but the sustainability element wasn't quite there. Um, and if I wanted to have a family, I wanted to scale up, then I needed something a little more stable. And I got an opportunity to work at MIT. Uh, it was during sort of this MOOC era time, which is basically massive open online courseware, uh, where a lot of schools are just sort of putting their content online uh, through edX or Coursera or whatever the case may be. Uh, but MIT specifically, they were looking for filmmakers who could sort of bridge the gap uh, and make sure that there was sort of like a higher quality uh, content. It wasn't just like a camera in the back of a classroom. And so I had the luxury of doing that. And I got to work with some amazing universities, Harvard, Boston University, Wellesley. Uh, but as a result of that work, uh, I got invited to come out to California. So I relocated. And I'm working at Stanford, and I was doing that work at, for Stanford for about five years as well. Uh, but SDE came along, like I said, during the pandemic. And one of the things that really moves me, which is why I had gone uh, to MIT, was this idea of equity and education and leveraging uh, these tools. And so uh, SDE, again, provided me an opportunity to do just that, like fulfill my passion as a filmmaker, but then simultaneously uh, sort of create with a mission in mind. So it was really, really valuable for me. Yeah, that's very cool. 
And I, yeah, I'm excited to hear more about kind of the the applications that uh, you're seeing in education. You know, I think may, maybe most people don't know this, but Stanford is really, I mean, they've been in XR from the very beginning with Jeremy Balinson and the Virtual Human Interaction Lab. And so, and even for us as a company, we've been in education uh, for some time over the last few years. So I'm very curious, though, with that kind of background at Stanford, you come on board, COVID hits, uh, access, equity, like talk about kind of what what it's like deploying an XR program under that umbrella of Stanford, of, of Jeremy, and, and how COVID kind of played into that. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, you know, Stanford's been doing this kind of work using, you know, XR technologies since 2003. So sort of like very much at the beginnings, uh, you know, Jeremy set a lot of the groundwork that we utilize and leverage today. Uh, when I first joined uh, Stanford, they had a huge studio in the basement of the building that I'm in currently. And one of the faculty came to us and they're like, you know, they're doing a course on exercise and aging and they wanted to literally show the transformation of the heart uh what does that look like as you get older what does it look like when you don't exercise what does it look like when you do exercise and so you know we decided to create a whole infrastructure where the faculty could walk through the heart and we could get to see all the different phases and like as a filmmaker, you know, especially in an academic setting, one of the best practices is like you only use a video when you can transmit information, transport a learner and transform a concept. So like if you can't do those things, there's no value add to doing video. You could probably just do that in a, in a text based situation. And so we thought in this case, what would be nice is create this immersive experience. It would have a greater impact, a greater reach uh, for you know, various learners who are like, I understand that when I don't exercise, my body goes through a set of stages, but it's a whole different experience when you get to see it. And so the faculty is literally there and she's like, yeah, you know, this is the heart of a runner. And you get to see how sort of like pink all the different parts of the heart are. She's walking through, you know, different arteries. And it's like, these arteries are blocked to this extent, but this is what it looks like when you don't exercise. And then you get to sort of see the plaque build in and things like that. So I think it's like super immersive experiences like that do exactly the three things I was saying. You know, we were able to transmit uh, a set of informations to the learner. We transported them directly into a heart. And then we transformed the learning experience because again, uh, we all sort of have this conceptual understanding of like, this is what it looks like when I do or don't do something. But when you get to really witness it, it does change the dynamic. Um, so that, that's one sort of like way that we were leveraging VR um, in the space. Uh, now in the current role that I'm in and sort of talking again about equity and like sort of post pandemic, uh, one of the things we are appreciating is that the Supreme Court uh, is sort of grappling with ideas around affirmative action. And within the next few years, that may be a metric that colleges can't use anymore to determine who they're admitting, who they're not admitting. Uh, and so that opens up a lot of challenges for universities. And so one of the things I'm doing now is I'm working with a student-led group uh, here at Stanford in partnership with the Jeremy's unit uh, to, they're called the, the Stanford XR uh, is what they're called. And they're creating student stories, which in a virtual space. And the idea there is, again, if, you know, again, assuming that people are remote 
and they can't necessarily fly in with ease. All the things we've seen with the pandemic. Students who live on the East Coast, for instance, would be able to access the campus still in this semi-more tangible way. We'd get to transport them in. Then simultaneously, rather than sort of doing a generic tour of like, you know, look at the Spanish tiles on this building, or this is where this, you know, uh, faculty member that you are super excited about working with, this is the building they're in. We were like, how about we transport the students directly into a space where they can meet with other students, other Stanford students. And so they come into this, this sort of virtual space and the idea is that they're engaging with Stanford, current Stanford students who are sharing their stories. Um, we think it's important just because A, there's a ton of diversity especially in the undergraduate level. And we want students, again, who are a little bit further away who can't come in to appreciate that despite sort of the elite name of Stanford and the privilege and all of those things, there's a lot of great things going on and there's a lot of access that they could benefit from. And so that's just, you know, one of the examples of how we're leveraging this technology sort of as a reaction to COVID, but then simultaneously other social things that are taking place uh, at the same time. I love that, hearing about that impact. Um, and you talked about one specific mechanism, the ability to transport somebody. And we've all had that in VR. If you put on a headset, you've, you've been immersed in another world and it, it does feel real. Uh, what else are you experimenting with? What, what's kind of on your radar? Uh, and, and maybe, is there, are there any other experiences that you're excited about right now? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that, you know, everyone's obviously talking about right now is this, like, this push for AI, like this big craze around AI. I think a lot of people don't appreciate that AI paired with things like VR, really valuable. Like, the implications there are massive. Um, some of the big challenges with VR, obviously, are access when it comes to, you know, the different hardware. Uh, so that's an issue. Then simultaneously, because it's just costly. Um, then simultaneously, it's like, how do you develop and create content fast enough? Um, you know, when we first started, we would be working with a program and that program would probably get sunset before our project was finished using it. And then there wasn't enough sort of support around that. Uh, and so like slowly but surely they were getting to a place where a things are becoming more accessible, more affordable, more sort of consumer based. Uh, and that's both in the consumer side of things, but then simultaneously in the developer side of things. And so I think we're really excited to see where the field is going and how we can leverage it, especially for students that we're working with who historically have been left out of those kinds of technologies and, and access to those kinds of experiences. Um, you know, again, doing things with VR glasses is an option. I think when we think of XR, that's kind of the default where it's sort of like, oh, you know, you get a MetaQuest situation. But the reality is, is like AR is super valuable, super accessible. I think a lot of people are more prone to having a phone than they are even to having a computer, for instance. Then those same demographics probably have Snapchat or Instagram or something along those lines. And those platforms are already leveraging AR. And so it's been socialized and in a very familiar way. And I think for learners, there's a way where you can create, and there's a ton of research out there about this, where it's like overlaying when you're doing trainings, uh, this idea of now I need you to do this. And you can literally have a visual that's sort of indicating like you need to move your hand to this location and that muscle memory gets developed. So I think there's something there. 
Um, I think the other thing that we sometimes fail to appreciate about VR and what it's capable of is like there's an emotional strength that can be sort of like created, afforded to towards. And so like, you know, Jeremy's unit has created a ton of research around empathy training. And I think more of that is probably valuable. And this is, again, sort of in response to all the different things that are taking place socially, especially here in the U.S. Now, during the pandemic, pre-pandemic, uh, if you can expose people to different experiences and help them sort of have a modality shift in how they're engaging with their reality. So like, you know, I remember when I was growing up, there was this idea that VR was going to make people stay in their homes and just live in glasses and VR worlds. And like the truth is virtual reality is an opportunity to train people to actually go out into the real world and do better work and to just process better. Um, part of the reason why I was able to, you know, join you guys today is I had met one of your colleagues, David, at a, uh, you know, an immersive week uh, out in Rotterdam. And one of the things I really, really appreciated about that experience, there's a group who was making content with people who had autism in mind. So it was very specifically created to adjust for some of the constraints that they had. And it just like reminded me like why I do this work. There's a, always these demographics who are often just not thought about uh, when it comes to creating accessible educational experiences. And the reality is they have just as much to contribute to all of our worlds and our economies and all of those things. But if they don't have the tools because we've sort of designed without them in mind, we're doing ourselves as a species collectively a disservice. Um, and so like, again, this idea of like, how do we leverage these technologies to capture those demographics and hopefully improve the world in some ways? Well said, man, I, I don't normally do this, but you know, so our, our why here at Arbor is all about using this immersive technology uh, as a tool, not as an escape to help us have, give our time back and to help resource us so that we can have richer real world relationships and, and to have flourishing communities. And I think that's something that really resonates deeply with both Brad and I. I. I'm curious if you're willing to share it all. You know, you have a filmmaker background. What What's your personal why? Like, why, what drives you? What when you wake up in the morning? Why 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 do you do what you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've touched on it a little bit, but for me, I always ask myself, like, again, collectively as a species, how much further along would we have been, or, or could we be, if again, there's just like this this democratization of education, like if everybody had access, um, some of the issues that we face on a normal everyday basis, if we had more voices in the room, right? Oftentimes, especially, you know, being in these sort of like really elite higher ed spaces, uh, you, you fail to appreciate that the answers don't always come from, you know, a Nobel laureate. They don't often come from, you know, the CEO of some tech industry. Uh, tech company. It's, it's more those people who are literally on the ground experiencing these really challenging situations and they're constantly, their minds are forced to have to figure out solutions. And so if we're able to give tools uh, away to all the different people uh, who we should be reaching and who are not, we kind of increase our odds of having better solutions. So I think that's really, really important for one. I think for two, uh, I've had the privilege of working in New York, but I was living in New Jersey at the time. Um, and I was living just sort of like on the outskirts of Newark. 
And I got to see every single day commuting into work, sort of this world of like the haves and then the have nots. And like just experiencing that, realizing like potentially some of those gaps uh, between those two di different demographics, it's just access to resources and education. And so as a filmmaker, I feel like I have this really amazing opportunity to tell stories that are super dynamic and engaging while simultaneously having a through line around access and accessibility, privilege, and appreciating that privilege shouldn't be something that prevents the collective from benefiting. And like, that's where we are now, where it's like we're hoarding things and people just aren't able to do what they need to do uh, to help the species along. Thanks for sharing. That's, uh, I really appreciate it, yeah. We, I, I think we've all had experiences, most people listening, putting on a headset and kind of stepping into somebody else's shoes in a way that I think a, a good film, you know, you sit in a movie theater and you can be transported. But I, I'm always amazed by, um, we've, we've seen some really interesting, even um, there's one experience where you're in a, you step into the body of a Latina woman who just got a raise uh, promotion and you kind of realize as her that she maybe uh, she you know the, the conversation with the coworkers she starts having this realization that oh wow I was promoted because I was I'm Latina not because maybe and it's just it's it's interesting how different that is when you're when you're you're in her body and you you're, you look down and you see her hands versus maybe watching a film I'm curious have there been any of your experiences. We actually did also just did an interview with uh, uh, fantastic ISV uh, body swaps, and they do some of the same same really good work. Have you have you tried any experiences where you had that kind of aha moment where you were transported into somebody else's world and you had sort of a, a transformative experience that you could share about, or or maybe if your students or your team has one that is a, is a favorite. Yeah, so it's it's awesome that you bring that up. So, you know, again, Jeremy's lab, uh, you know, the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford, they do a lot of empathy training. And two of the experiences that I've had the privilege of doing at the lab, one is you're transported into the body of a homeless person for a day, and you just get to experience all the different ways that they're treated. Um, you know, living in the Bay Area, homelessness is definitely... Uh, something that we face uh, regularly, and it's not, it's a very complex issue and not an easy to resolve one. But there's often this word disconnect where it's like, you know, there's a little liberality that runs through where like they're humans and we need to treat people who are homeless like humans. But then when those same homeless people are sort of like parked out in front of your office space or your home, your relationship to that experience changes. And, you know, I think being transported into uh, a homeless person through virtual means, it's an awesome way to build empathy, right? Like you, you start to realize like, I'm sitting on a bus and everybody is moving away from me slowly. And that's not something that if I wasn't homeless, uh, that I'm familiar or comfortable with. That's not as like, it's very nuanced experience. Um, that same lab, uh, that they transport you into a homeless person. They also do it into uh, a black male. And, you know, he's walking around and he has an incursion with police. And so like having that experience, I think the aha moment for me is I'm part of a team of about 11, 13 people with part-time hires. And I'm the only black person on the team. And so 
when you're in a room full of, you know, white people, predominantly a few Asians and Hispanics, and they get to have this experience. And then you get just to watch sort of, again, that sort of epiphany happen for them. Uh, it's really, really like moving to, to realize like, you know, in the beginning they're walking around and they feel that they have a sense of what reality is. And then ironically, they go into a virtual reality to get a better handle on what reality actually is. And I think similar to what you just referenced, Will, it's this idea of like, even sometimes the micro elements of our realities have really large impacts. So, you know, if you're a Latino woman and you discover that you've been hired uh, or promoted as a result of your race, there's, there, that's not usually done in a like hammer over the head kind of way. Those are like these micro interactions, microaggressions, subtle things that are taking place. And so when you're not her, it's easy to look past those micro moments. Yeah, you're like, you should just be happy you got promoted. Like, why are you worried about that? But when you are her, you realize like, you have to be aware of that. And like, that's a, a really integral part of our experience. Like, it's not easy to live in a place where you realize that you've sort of been broken down to these little parts. Um, but again, like, it's sort of ironic that you have to go through a virtual experience actually understand it to some extent what reality has to offer for somebody. Yeah, it's so true. Uh, it brings me back to, you know, a lot of corporate training is is so boring. And I remember my first job at a restaurant, I was 14 and a half and they put on some video about sexual harassment and it was so bad. I couldn't even watch it. So I was just doodling on the pad and I was just thinking, man, it's so much more effective. Uh, some of the stuff that's coming out in VR where you really can uh, kind of, yeah, I mean, they say, walk a mile in somebody's shoes if you want to understand them. And I think that's that's huge. Well, I kind of want to zoom out a little bit. I think we kind of focus in on the personal and these really unique experiences that can be transformative. I want to talk about what does it take to actually implement a VR program at a university? Um, and maybe we could start with content, how you guys think about sourcing content. There's the big question of, do we build it internally? Do we source it externally? So maybe we start there. How, how is your team thought about that. Um, and when you think about scaling to other universities, even how, would, what would you suggest or what would you recommend? Yeah. So, you know, Stanford is a unique case just because we do have access to quite a bit, but I think, I think there's some universal truths that run through, right? So one thing that all universities sort of have the privilege of, uh, a workforce, right? And a lot of this VR work really demands a lot of collaboration uh, and a lot of different various skill sets. So even when I was referencing uh, the sort of like Stanford XR project that we're working on, we have students who are building uh, the different universes, but we're bringing in students from all the various schools to share their stories, right? And so like everybody's involved. And I think there's a world where if we can bring students, as a university anyway, we can bring students into this process Number one, it helps build their portfolios. It gives them this amazing experience. Uh, but then number two, it's one of those things where, you know, usually when you have to outsource these labors, they can become rather expensive and costly. Uh, not to say that the students are, you know, cheap labor, but at the same time, you don't have to pay them quite as much as you would like an agency who's developing something for you. Um, now, especially more than ever, because the software is more accessible and more affordable, like this is a great time, like bring in as many people as you can. I think the second part is that brain trust. So like, again, you're on a college campus, you have access to all types of really well-trained 
uh, people. And again, don't feel limited to uh, just the virtual reality component, right? Bring in all types of different users uh, to experience and give feedback. But then also as you're developing, I think it's really important. Uh, one of the things that the students here are doing is they're bringing ethicists into the development process. So they're thinking through like, if we decide to make this decision, what are the implications? Who benefits? Who's harmed? And that shapes that process. So I think there's there's something to that again, especially within the university space, is like leveraging the brain trust. Like that's the value add of a college space. Um, I think when you're thinking about things like cost, because that always comes up uh, when you're having these conversations, we're now in a world where it's a lot more feasible to scale. Uh, maybe you're not going to have glasses for everybody. Uh, and that's okay. But again, leveraging, you know, phones or even doing it as a web-based experience, uh, th there's, the limitations are far less than there were before. Um, a lot of times the process is probably not entirely dissimilar to industry where it's like, you know, we're, we're sitting down collectively and we're thinking about what we want the end to look like. Uh, but then we start storyboarding and, you know, all the different narratives. When you do virtual experiences, uh, it comes with the additional challenge and layering of, you know, you're not just having this very linear experience. You're making decisions as a user. And so, like, what are all the ways? And, like, what's fantastic there, at least for me especially, is there's, there's equity within that, right? Like, all the different experiences that you could possibly have uh, within a space how do you allow and afford your user that opportunity and still build it within a really robust experience? And so I think there's something to that as well. Like as you're building out, um, I couldn't stress enough just having all the people in, but again, you know, all the normal issues that come up with the development of virtual content, uh, those things can be really fun to sort of like get through, especially as a group. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm just thinking again, when you're doing research, there's like another additional layer to all of that because a lot of times you're like, what are the end goals of this? Uh, and what are you hoping to do with that research? And I think, you know, when it comes to bringing these technologies into a classroom, if they don't align with a learner goal, it probably means you shouldn't be using the tool, right? Like you should only use this tool if the outcome means a better learning experience uh, for your student. And so like, even that's a process, like, I feel like I'm attacking your question from all these different angles, but it's only because as I'm looking at it in my head, uh, there's, there's all these ways to sort of look at it. Yeah, no, it's complex. So you talked about content, you talked a little bit about people. So we're working with universities all, all over the world, like Stanford, that it seems like one of the topics that keeps coming up is you have these consumer headsets. Um, we, we figure out how to get content on them, whether it's creating it internally with students or teams or externally with vendors. But then the, there's all these other systems and processes you have to think about putting in place, especially as you scale. Have you guys come across any pain points? And even when it comes to getting content updated or making sure headsets don't walk off and leave the campus, um, what are some of the things that you've, you've come across that, have, that you think other educators probably will also face? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of hardware sort of challenges that you just have to sort of think about going in. So when we did the hard, uh, you know, we're working in a studio that's working through, you know, hundreds of gigabytes of information all the time. And we still needed to sort of like upscale 
uh, our, our systems to accommodate for the even larger amount uh, of information. So like anyone who's developing and they're thinking to themselves like, oh, we can just throw this on a hard drive. You know, no, we, we have a RAID system and we still need it. And a RAID system just is like a whole bunch of really massive hard drives. And we still needed to, to go back and rethink like, how do we do this to scale? We had the luxury in that moment that we were only creating this one experience. But to your point, if this is something that you want to do regularly and you want to continue to build off of, uh, you have to think about those things in advance. Um, then, you know, to the point that you made uh, around sort of like headsets, uh, the team that we're working with, we've given them all headsets. Uh, but to your point, like we're using Arbor XR specifically so that we can track those headsets. Uh, the students go away on winter break and then you discover that they're like, oh, I'm in Singapore right now visiting my family. I brought the headset with me and you're like, oh, my goodness, you know, how do I account for that? Uh, but those are the kinds of things, again, that you're sort of thinking about, like how exactly are your developers sort of being, uh, you know, just kept up to speed? Like, how do we know where things are, how they're using them, uh, you know, Again, because we're working with students, I get it. Like sometimes you, you go visit your family in Singapore and then you're like, oh, I forgot to, to pack it when I came back. And it's like, you know, that's a problem, but at least we know where it is. You left it on, thankfully. And so, you know, something like Arbor XR is like fantastic for those kinds of tracking elements. Um, but again, even like deploying things as well. So like there's a hardware side, then there's a software side and you have a lot of people working on a singular project you want to make sure that everyone is sort of like, you know, with a Google document that's live and everyone's in there making edits, you need it to almost feel as close to real time as possible, just so then that way people aren't overriding each other or duplicating efforts. And so again, having those softwares in place that allow multiple people to work on a singular project uh, is really, really important. And so those are things, again, that in the very beginning stages uh, are worth thinking about. I think as a creative, it's always a challenge because either you're a gearhead and you're super excited by the tech or you're sort of like the storyteller and you're really more excited about the storytelling. And I think with virtual reality, especially, you need to bring those two acumen together. If you don't have one of those acumen, find someone who does. So if you have someone who is tech oriented, who can think through that process, bring them in as early as possible because without them, the creative vision may not be able to actualize because you don't have the hardware for it. You don't have the software for it. That's really, really, uh, you know, integral. Like you can't do these two things separate and sort of like in a silo and then hope it all just shakes out in the end. It's not that easy at all. No, it's funny when we, <clears throat> when we transitioned from kind of being in the entertainment space with uh, tethered headsets to, to the standalone devices, so many of our early kind of exploratory uh, customer calls with universities or, or you know, enterprise, the, you, the processes they were using, they were shipping headsets back and forth. They were mailing content. I mean, literally big companies were putting content on a flash drive and mailing it like in the mail, right? Like we're just like, oh my goodness, this, it's like you talk about like this, the, the future, the most futuristic hardware on one hand, and then the most archaic process on the other, you know, it's just kind of this weird mismatch. Um, okay. We're almost out of time. And we typically end with a hot take. But I still have a question that I want to ask you. I think uh, with your perspective, I want something more meaningful. So like Will said, we work with a lot of universities. We work with a lot of high schools. I mean, you said so many things that really resonate with me. I think the access is just 
man, like I, I used to work in a nonprofit that that was an education nonprofit that reached that served uh, developing nations, and you think about just the potential that's there if there was more access, right? And then you touched on the importance of of the XR initiative aligning with the learner goals in the classroom. So there's a lot there when you think about, okay, you know, even philosophically, like what does the future of XR education look like? We've got, we've got groups we talk to that it's okay. It's got to get to where it's a one-to-one. Every student has their own device. Others say, no, it's going to be a shared scenario. Then, then you've got this type of empathy content, which is super powerful. And then you've got very practical math content. Like how do you see that all playing out over the coming I don't know, decade as we close in 30 seconds. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. um, yeah, a great question. Um, and it is something that I'm often thinking about. Uh, a lot of the work I do really is future focused, like how what, what's the world we want to wake up to tomorrow and how do we get there once we figure that out? I think the space for VR, one of the things that we have to appreciate, VR within itself is not a silver bullet. So it's never going to really like be the, the be all or end all answer for anything. But I think that there is a world as I see it, where again, these sort of like augmented experiences will constantly sort of creep into our existences and they'll help shape and inform things potentially for the better. Um, when I think about how that looks, I'm thinking about things like even glasses, right? I know Snap had tried to do it at one point, you know, Google, Facebook, all these different big tech companies are trying to figure out how to integrate AR and XR on a normal everyday basis. I think number one, uh, the future AR and XR will be more consumable for sure, without question. Yeah, so like there's gonna be that access, which is nice. And it's not gonna be pro-consumer, it's going to be consumer. Uh, I think when it comes to education and the, the deployment of it, I would love to see a world where, again, we're having more immersive experiences and they don't need to have a headset. They don't need to be in a classroom. They don't always need to be collaborative. I think it's great if they are, especially if there's a way to have people all around the world sort of having this virtual experience collectively. Uh, that just opens up the doors for exchange of information in a way that we just don't see um, or have currently, not really well, not robustly. And so I think there's a world where that, that works out. And, you know, I think between making it sort of more globally accessible uh, and making it more accessible by the consumer, um, that increases equity and then deployment, which we've talked about, I think using the technologies, for instance, that ArborXR has, where you can literally just send groups of people these different drops at any given time I think that's amazing. Like the, the implications of that, especially within an academic space, um, are really large once the technology sort of meets up with it a little bit more. Um, I don't think that the higher ed space is going to be the sort of sole arbiter of education because of VR. I think there's going to be a lot of training opportunities. VR is amazing for training. And so like to your point, Brad, you would sort of said like, you have this kind of educational content and then you have this other kind of educational content. I think, I think where VR shines, at least right now, is in the training. And I think slowly but surely, vocational schools would be an amazing place for uh, this kind of technology. Um, and like, we have to appreciate that even though we don't view it as traditionally vocational, med school, very vocational, yeah? If you have a med school, you could do surgeries, 
uh, virtually. That would be amazing. Yeah. So that's like really, really valuable. Um, I think there's a world to school of education. You're teaching students. There's no better way to train teachers than to literally drop them into a space, give them all types of scenarios and help them sort of shape their muscle memory through that experience. Um, vocational school. Uh, you know, I've heard of law schools creating uh, virtual courts where you can go in and like go through that process and having those different sort of control mechanisms to change the outcomes so that you have to adapt really quickly. Vocational school, valuable. So again, there's like this, this world where all these different schools need training. Um, and I think that's where you're going to see the future really, really shine with this technology. Um, that said, kind of as a closing point, the reality is, is that until these technologies are more accessible, uh, we won't know just the limits, like how far out could this go? But once they do become, I won't lie to you. I think even whatever I can imagine right, right now and tell you it's a drop in the bucket. Like once more people are able to bring their experiences to sort of like the creation process around VR and XR in general, the limits are kind of endless because everyone is just going to have a very unique use case. But once you have a, a million use cases, you just start experiencing this tech in a very different way. So I think that's what the future, the future is make it accessible. Once it's accessible, let's see where it goes. It could go everywhere, anywhere, all the time. Yeah, that's great. And it, honestly, at that point, it starts feeding itself, right? Like I think you opened up with film saying that you, you film doesn't make sense or video doesn't make sense if it doesn't transmit, transport or transform. When we think about VR, we think about things that are difficult, dangerous or expensive, right? And and when you think of what, it, yeah, it's a balance quote. Uh, <coughs> and so, yeah, I mean, you gave a lot of great use cases there. And, and what we consistently see and use training very loosely, right? So in, from a standard education setting all the way to, to industry, when people are learning faster, when when they're learning quicker and goodness, I just want to hit it again. The accessibility piece to me, it's, it's just super, super exciting. So, uh, Eric really appreciate your time today. I, I appreciate of course hearing about all the practical, but really you shared your heart with us. And, and I think that was, that was great. And, and it's, it really just speaks to even Stanford as an institution, just how you all look at, uh, XR and kind of the thoughtfulness with how this, how this thing rolls out. So thank you so much. And we're excited to see, what else comes from the Stanford Digital Ed in the future? Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Man, such a great interview. I, I really appreciate how thoughtful Eric is and his approach uh, to rolling out XR at Stanford and kind of all the different initiatives that they're working on. I know. It was great to hear from a true pioneer in the space. It actually brought me back to when we got to visit Stanford and tour the, um, the lab, Dr. Balenson's lab, which really was the origin of the original research for virtual reality. Yeah, that was, that was an awesome experience. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, make sure you subscribe wherever you consume podcasts, and we look forward to seeing you next time.